Your lecturer is Dr. Benjamin Schumacher. Dr. Schumacher is professor of physics at Kenyon College, where he has taught for 25 years. He received his PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Schumacher is the author of numerous scientific papers and books, and co-author of Quantum Processes, Systems, and Information. As one of the founders of quantum information theory, he established several fundamental results about the information capacity of quantum systems. For his contributions to quantum information theory, Dr. Schumacher won the 2002 International Quantum Communication Award and was named a Fellow of the American Physical Society. If the science of information were a zoo, then any of the animals could be turned into any other animal. This transformability of information, its capacity to shift from one physical form to another, is perhaps the most fundamental principle of the science of information. Here we have four familiar physical media for representing music. The, the phonograph record represents musical sounds as variations in the shape of a thin spiral groove that wraps around the face of the disc from the outside to the middle. In a cassette, the sound is represented as a series of magnetic bands on a narrow flexible tape wound up on spools. The, the tape in one cassette would stretch the length of a football field, yet that is actually shorter than one of those phonograph grooves. The CD represents sounds by a series of microscopic pits half a micron wide, read out by a tightly focused laser beam. But a lot of music these days is stored on a computer, like other kinds of data. So here is a memory unit from a computer. It looks nothing like, and it works nothing like, the record or the cassette or the CD. Yet they all store the same piece of information, a piece of music. In a way, it's ironic that we now use computers to store musical sounds. In the early days of computers, many of them stored their data as sound waves, bouncing back and forth in long tubes of liquid mercury. Sound as data, data as sound. Any animal into any other. Another lesson in the transformability of information. You and I live in a revolutionary age, the age of information. Never before in history have we been able to acquire, record, communicate, and use so many different forms of information. Never before have we had access to such vast quantities of data of every kind. Never before have we been able to translate information from one form to another so easily and quickly. And so, never before have we had such a need to comprehend the concepts and principles of information. The historical roots of this new age of ours go way back, but the real revolution took off in 1948 in New Jersey at the research branch of the old Bell System, Bell Labs. And one of the main events that triggered it was the publication in the Bell System Technical Journal of a long scientific paper by the American engineer and mathematician Claude Shannon. That paper set forth the elements of a new science 
called information theory, the science that became the new constitution of our revolutionary age. It is impossible to exaggerate the importance of Shannon's ideas. His theory has had an impact far beyond the technology of communication and computing. Information has proved to be a profound unifying idea in many branches of science. It, it plays a, a central role in contemporary physics and biology, and even finance and economics. And yet, what is information? Information is a paradox. On the one hand, information is physical. Whenever we communicate or record information, we always make use of a physical medium. Sound, light, radio waves, electrical signals, magnetic patterns. But on the other hand, information is also abstract. The, the messages carried by our physical signals are not really identical to the signals themselves. Shakespeare's plays are not just bits of ink on a page. That dichotomy is the key to the amazing transformability of information, from letter to laser pulse, from radio signal to sound wave. And yet, somehow the same. But I think the greatest example of information transformability in all of human history is the invention that gave us human history in the first place, writing. Human speech is a, a pattern of sound. Uh, spoken words travel a little distance, and then they fade away. But in writing, these spoken words are rendered as patterns carved or painted on a surface. And in this form, they become durable rather than ephemeral. They can be carried from place to place. Through writing, I can receive the words of someone a thousand miles away or a thousand years ago. There are many different kinds of writing systems. The Japanese use three different kinds of systems. Kanji is a logographic system. The symbols stand for entire words. There are thousands of kanji. In the hiragana system, like the closely related katakana system, the, the, the symbols stand for syllables that make up words. There are 46 characters in the hiragana system. Finally, Japanese is often written using the 26 letters of the English or Roman alphabet, each one standing for a sound within a syllable. In Japan, they call this system romaji. The fewer symbols you have, the more of them you need to use. Thus, the Japanese word mizu, meaning water, requires one logogram in kanji, two syllables in hiragana, or four letters in romaji. Let me show you one of my favorite examples of writing, the old runic alphabet that was common in northern Europe about a thousand years ago. Uh, these particular inscriptions, scratched onto sticks and pieces of scrap wood, were dug up in the old city of Brigen, modern-day Bergen in Norway. The, the, the Brigen inscriptions give fascinating glimpses of daily life in old Norway. They speak to us over the centuries. Some of the inscriptions are simply labels to be attached to things. This belongs to Johan. Some are magic charms or prayers or curses. Some of the sticks are, are simple text messages, like we might send on a cell phone today. Gita says you are to come home. We can read the Brigand inscriptions because we still understand the runic alphabet. And that's lucky. Writing represents speech, and in alphabetic writing, each symbol represents a sound. But the rule of association between the symbol and the message, the code, is entirely arbitrary. There is no necessary connection between one set of scratches and the sound P. Writing works because both writer and reader know the code. Without the code, 
There is no way to understand what the symbols mean. We weren't so lucky with the Egyptian hieroglyphs. For thousands of years, ancient Egyptians made inscriptions on stone and writings on papyrus using a beautiful script of stylized pictures. And then, around 1,500 years ago, the last Egyptian scribe who knew the ancient hieroglyphic code died. The hieroglyphs became incomprehensible. But not forever. 200 years ago, a brilliant Frenchman named Jean-Francois Champollion rediscovered the code. How did he do that? He made use of one of the most famous artifacts in all of archaeology, the Rosetta Stone. And I have a, a one-quarter scale reproduction of the Rosetta Stone that hangs in my office, and I've brought it here to show you. The original is in the British Museum. It's a large slab of granite covered with writing. The inscription on it is a religious decree from the late history of Egypt after that country was conquered by Alexander the Great. And so the decree is given three times in three different written languages. At the bottom is Greek, written in the familiar Greek letters. Next comes an Egyptian inscription using an everyday script that scholars call demotic. The top is written in the mysterious hieroglyphs. Champollion was able to compare the three inscriptions and analyze the correspondences, recognize the Egyptian language as a relative of modern Coptic, and work out the hieroglyphic code. It turns out to be a curious mixture of logographic and alphabetic systems. Champollion's discovery opened for us the writings of ancient Egypt. I find the Rosetta Stone to be an inspiration to me as a scientist. It's a testimony to the ability of the human mind to unravel even the most difficult puzzles. But the Rosetta Stone is also an icon of the transformability of information. The same abstract message is here represented physically in three different forms, as different patterns carved into stone. I've been telling you about systems of writing, both ancient and modern, to make a point. The essential concepts of information, the concepts of message and symbol and code, are not new in human experience. They are as old as language itself. What is new is the jaw-dropping multiplicity of uses to which we have put those concepts in the age of information. That is the legacy of Shannon's revolution. Claude Shannon hardly seemed like a revolutionary. He was a lean, quiet man, fond of tinkering, interested in puzzles and games. He juggled. He built robots that juggled. But, but everyone who knew him knew that he had a brilliant and original mind. The, the institutions that employed him had the good sense to leave him alone, to investigate his own research problems his own way. Later in his career, when he was on the MIT faculty, he only taught a single course in 20 years. It was a research seminar in the late 1950s. And here is Shannon's approach to teaching. Every week, he would discover something new and lecture on that. I think Shannon's real gift was a genius for abstraction. He had an uncanny ability to look at a complicated real-world subject and see through the technical details to the essential logical structure beneath. And so that's the talent he called upon during World War II and the years just after as he pondered the subject of communication. What is communication? How does it work? What is information? Like a detective, Shannon begins by figuring out what information is not. And his first point is his most startling. Shannon realizes that the mathematical idea of information is not the same thing as meaning. 
Remember, he is starting out by analyzing communication systems. After all, he works for the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. The essential communication process is the same, no matter what the message means. It could be a nursery rhyme, a formula, a photograph, a weather report, or even just a string of random numbers. It's all information. And in the same way, the idea of information is not about the value or the significance of a message. Meaning, value, and significance are obviously important qualities, but they are not the key to understanding what information is. What's left? What's left, Shannon says, is the distinction between different messages. It's as simple as that. Every message that is communicated is one particular message out of a set of many different possible messages. And so, so here's a pretty good definition of information as Shannon sees it. Information is the ability to distinguish reliably among possible alternatives. So consider two people, Alice and Bob. Bob has just asked Alice a question, maybe a very simple one with a yes or no answer. But Bob does not know what the answer is. It might be no, it might be yes. He cannot distinguish reliably which one of the possible answers is the right one. He lacks information. Now Alice says yes. Bob hears and understands her. He has gained information. If information is all about the distinction between possible messages, then there is a fundamental atom of information, the binary distinction between just two possible messages. The, the messages might be yes and no, as in Alice's answer to Bob. The, they might be on and off for an electrical signal, or the binary digits one and zero. It doesn't matter what the messages mean. It only matters that there are two possible alternatives. Such a simple two-value message is called a bit, which is short for binary digit. The term was coined by John Tukey, a mathematician and statistician who was also at Bell Labs when Shannon was thinking out his theory. Shannon pointed out that bits form a, a kind of universal currency for information. Our basic alphabet only needs two distinct symbols. And because we can transform information, we can freely switch from one code to another, then any sort of information, numbers, words, pictures, audio, or video, can be represented by bits, arrangements of binary digits, zeros and one. So, Here's a, a concrete example. It's the code that was established for teletype machines in 1930, a modernized version of one invented 60 years earlier by the French telegraph engineer Emile Baudot. In a Baudot code, each letter of the alphabet is represented by five bits. The letter A is 11000. The letter B is 10011. A space between letters is 00100, and so on. So a, a teletype machine has a keyboard. The operator pushes the key for a letter, and a set of five zeros and ones are transmitted on wires via electrical signals. At the far end, another machine receives the signal and types out the corresponding letter. Letters can also be stored using paper tape. On the tape are tiny sprocket holes, which help guide it through the machines. The other larger holes represent the zeros and ones, arranged in groups of five in rows across the tape. A hole means one, and no hole means zero. To create a record tape, you simply use a machine that makes holes in the right pattern based on the teletype signals. Then you fold or spool the tape up and put it in a safe place. 
To read the tape, you feed it into another machine that detects the pattern of holes, either with electrical contacts or beams of light, and turns them back into teletype signals. Why did Baudot use five bits for the teletype code? Why not four or seven? The answer involves a fundamental fact of information theory. A code represents different messages by a series or string of symbols, the five binary digits in this case. This is the code word that represents the message. But the code has to preserve the information, that is the distinction between messages. So no two different messages can be represented by the same code word. And that means that the number of possible code words in the code can be no smaller than the number of possible messages, which we will call M. That is, the number of possible code words is greater than or equal to M. That's our fundamental fact about codes. In the teletype, we're coding letters of the alphabet. There are 26 letters, and since we also need a character for the space between words, we can suppose that M is equal to 27. How many 5-bit code words do we have? Well, there are two possible values for the first bit, and for each of those two possible values, there are two possible values for the second bit, and so on. So the total number of possible 5-bit combinations is 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, which equals 2 to the fifth power, or 32. That number of code words, 32, is greater than the number of possible messages, 27, so we're okay. But if we tried to get by with only four bits, we would only have two to the fourth, or 16, available code words, and that number wouldn't be enough. Here is another 19th century binary code. In fact, the first binary code, Braille, the writing system for the blind, created by Louis Braille in the 1830s. Letters are patterns of raised dots that a blind reader can scan by touch. The dots are in two by three blocks, so there are up to six possible dimples in a block. Think of a, a dot as, as one and no dot as zero. An A has, has one dot and five no dots. That makes Braille a six-bit code with two to the sixth or 64 possible code words. That's more than enough for letters plus many punctuation marks and other symbols. Both the Baudot and Braille codes, by the way, circumvent their own limited set of code words by a clever trick. Each has a special code word that indicates that the following code words should be interpreted according to an alternate rule. This is how each code represents numerals, for instance. These days, most text information is stored in computers using a 7-bit code called ASCII, the American Standard Code for Information Interchange, which was introduced in 1963. There are 2 to the 7th, or 128, ASCII code words. That's more than enough to represent any character on a keyboard, both upper and lower case. For instance, the capital letter X is 10110000. The comma is 01001111. Since the bits in a modern computer are generally grouped into bytes of 8 bits, one 7-bit ASCII code word is usually assigned one byte of computer memory. There is an even more modern 16-bit system called Unicode that allows computers to use letters and symbols from many different languages around the world. Lots of computer systems have, and, and computer applications are shifting to Unicode. The use of computers introduces a whole new aspect of information. The bits stored in co the computer's memory might simply be data, input, output, memory records, scratch space for calculations, and so on. These are organized into identifiable blocks of memory, usually called files. 
But the bits might also represent computer programs, groups of instructions that tell the computer how to operate. When we use a program, we say that the computer runs or executes the instructions. But a stored program is just a file like any other. It can be moved, copied, changed, or erased. So, so computer information has a two-sided nature, both data and program. One of the first people to understand this fact was the Hungarian-American mathematician John von Neumann. Now, there may be no single person who can be called the inventor of the modern computer, but if we made a list of the main claimants to that title, von Neumann's name would appear near the top. In the years following World War II, while Shannon was creating information theory, von Neumann was thinking about computers and robots, both the technical issues of how to build them and the basic principles on which they operate. One of the questions that von Neumann considered was this. Would it be possible to build a self reproducing machine. So imagine a robot that lives in a warehouse full of machine parts. The robot rolls around, grabbing components from the shelves and putting them all together, and eventually it assembles an exact duplicate of itself. That is what von Neumann had in mind. He asked, what would such a machine have to be like? How would it work? Well, obviously, a von Neumann robot would have to contain a complete set of instructions for building robots. In effect, it must contain a detailed picture or blueprint of itself. But that raises a tricky question. Does the blueprint of the robot contain, as part of the blueprint, the blueprint itself? I mean, we can imagine a picture that contains a miniature copy of itself. We can construct a geometric shape, part of which is an exact copy of the whole. That, that kind of self-similar shape is called a fractal. But self-similar mathematical objects are always infinite in some way. They contain infinitely many points, so they can have infinitely fine levels of detail. That's how you get a picture inside a picture inside a picture and so on. But that won't work for our von Neumann robot. Its memory is strictly finite. It cannot hold a blueprint that contains a little copy of the blueprint itself, which contains another smaller copy and so on to infinity. Von Neumann figured out that his machine had to work in a different way, a, a way that relies on the two-sided nature of information. The blueprint is a program that tells the robot how to construct its duplicate. But that program is also a kind of data file that can be copied and transmitted. The last step in the robot building program might read, make a copy of the robot building program in the new robot's memory. The self-reproducing program does not have to be infinite. It just has to be able to refer to itself. In thinking about his self-reproducing machines in the 1940s, John von Neumann was not seriously proposing a, an engineering project. We might someday make von Neumann machines, but, but that isn't the point. There already exist machines of that kind in nature. They are called living things. All kinds of biological organisms acquire energy and materials from their surroundings and produce offspring of the same basic design as themselves. So von Neumann's insight tells us something significant about how information works in living systems. We now know that the genetic information in an organism is contained in its DNA, as described by Watson and Crick just a few years after von Neumann's speculations. DNA is a long, twisted molecule that has a sequence of chemical bases, and that sequence is a kind of blueprint for the organism. Von Neumann's thought experiment tells us that the information in DNA must be used in two quite different ways. It must be expressed 
That is, it must act as a program for the organism to build and operate itself. But it must also be copied, like the blueprint of the von Neumann robot during reproduction. And that is exactly what we find in nature. Notice what has happened. The idea of information begins with technology, communication, codes, information storage, computers, robots. The same ideas apply in an important way to the natural world as well. Information theory is an essential part of science as well as engineering. And this is true not just in molecular genetics, but in many other fields too, from neuroscience to thermodynamics. In my view, many of the most fascinating connections between information science uh, or information and science are found in the science of physics. Physicists have discovered that information plays an essential role in the basic laws of matter and energy. Why? One answer is that information is a general way of thinking about cause and effect. When we communicate, the message that is sent causes the message that is received through some medium of, the, of transmitted signal. And every sort of physical cause and effect link can be regarded as a kind of information, a kind of communication. In the past, physicists regarded nature as a complex interplay of, of forces or energy transformations. Today, they increasingly regard nature as a complex network of information. Just as the, the concept of information influences physics, so too our understanding of physics influences the concept of information. And this is especially true in the domain of physics called quantum information theory. Quantum physics, of course, concerns the very strange and surprising laws of the microscopic world, matter and energy at the most fundamental level. It turns out that Shannon's original theory is not quite adequate to describe the information processes that go on in that world. Let me mention a specific example to explain what I mean. In ordinary information theory, there is no principle that restricts our ability to duplicate information. Given a string of bits, we can copy them as perfectly and as often as we like. But perfect copying is generally impossible for quantum information. We cannot simply duplicate a quantum bit or qubit without distortion. This is sometimes called the quantum no-cloning theorem. And in that respect, at least, quantum information is very different from the kind of information that Shannon considered. Information plays such a central role in physics that some people have wondered whether the most fundamental laws of nature might really be laws about information. The physicist John Wheeler summed up the idea in a pithy slogan, it from bit. Perhaps everything in the universe, every it, actually emerges from an underlying information process. It's a fascinating speculation. The science of information reaches out to the very edge of our understanding of the universe. But it begins by thinking about technology. That is where Shannon began, with the practical technological problems of communication and data storage. Therefore, we will be talking a lot about information technology. Now, some of our examples will be familiar in our everyday lives, but often the examples that we choose to discuss may seem a little old-fashioned. After all, when was the last time you stored data on a paper tape? 
There are reasons for including old-fashioned examples along with up-to-date ones. To begin with, information technology is developing so fast that by the time you see one of these lectures, even my up-to-date examples may seem a little dated. Moreover, the profound and timeless ideas of Shannon's information theory can often be illustrated more clearly by an older piece of technology. Furthermore, we are interested in how the science of information has developed over time, an interplay of ideas and inventions that has changed the world. Sometimes new ideas inspired new inventions, but sometimes things happen the other way. The inventions triggered the discovery of the ideas. In the revolution of 1948 that launched our age of information, the idea and the invention arrived together at the same time and the same place. The idea was Shannon's information theory, the theory that taught us how to distill all kinds of messages to bits. The invention was the transistor. The transistor was invented at Bell Labs by the physicists John Bardeen, Walter Bretain, and William Shockley. It was just a few months before Shannon's paper was published. A transistor is a device by which one electrical signal can control another. That, that sounds very simple. And it wasn't a new idea in 1948. Electrical relay switches and vacuum tubes were already in use for that same function. But the transistor is a solid-state device made out of a semiconducting material like germanium or silicon. Unlike the relay switch, it has no moving parts and it operates very fast. Unlike the vacuum tube, it does not require high voltages and it can be made exceedingly small. And with a modest number of transistors, uh, about six, it depends on the design, you can make a simple flip-flop circuit. That's the basic memory module of a computer where one bit of information can be written, stored indefinitely, and then read back later. The transistor was a breakthrough discovery, one for which its discoverers shared the Nobel Prize in 1956. And in the decades since the revolution of 1948, the transistor has become the basis for more and more amazing technologies, especially technologies for communication and information processing. Those technologies have become almost unimaginably powerful and complex. One way to chart this progress has been the famous Moore's Law. Gordon Moore is a scientist and businessman who was one of the founders of the modern electronics industry. He pioneered technology for integrated circuits, which, in which many transistors are located together in a single electronic unit. Moore observed that, since the invention of the integrated circuit, the number of transistors on one device has approximately doubled every two years. That's an increase by a factor of 32 every decade, and the rate of growth has continued without interruption for the last 50 years. Almost every measure of information processing power, speed, size, cost, energy consumption, has followed a similar exponential line of improvement. The result has been the creation of the technological world we live in, in this age of information. Today, my phone contains a billion transistors. In the laboratory next to mine, there is a computer with many trillion. What can you do with a trillion transistors, all exchanging tiny electrical signals very, very quickly? The answer to that question was actually foreseen back in the days of relays and vacuum tubes. And the man who foresaw it was none other than Claude Shannon. In his early days as a graduate student at MIT back in 1937, 
Even then, he was honing his uncanny ability to look at an old and complex problem in an entirely original way and to see where the simple logical pieces that would, would in time become the building blocks of a new world. Even then, Shannon was writing what has been called the most important thesis of the 20th century. So next time, that is where we will turn to the first stirrings of the age of information in the surprising scientific collision between arithmetic, logic, electricity, and one bit of information.